Thanks for listening to the Women Emerging podcast. Every week we put up a new episode with insights into leadership, practical leadership, seen through the eyes of women leaders of all ages and all sectors from right across the world. Our aim is for women to be able to say, if that's leadership, I'm in. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and join Women Emerging on our website, womenemerging.org. That's womenemerging.org for more fabulous free leadership content. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Julie Middleton here, Director of Women Emerging and your podcast host. This week, we're talking to Melissa. Melissa's going to talk to us about what she's learned about leadership over the years. But as with all the episodes in this series, she's going to be looking at them through objects. She's chosen an object for each point she wants to make, each insight. And it's been a lovely experience looking at leadership and asking people to tell stories by, and starting by talking about an object. Melissa's objects are a curious lot. They look really, really straightforward. There are four of them. A candle, a nameplate, you know, those sort of little tiny tents that you have at the front of a desk or when you're sitting at a conference. So a nameplate, that's her second one. Then she's got a spider's web and then she's got her phone. So they appear pretty straightforward stuff, but... The truth is they're not really. You'll discover why. But she's got a phone that speaks to her. And she'll tell you about that. And and when you pull the candle, the nameplate, the spider's web and the phone together, you sort of end up with zagging. But not zigging, but zagging. So let me leave it to Melissa, who is based in Singapore and has driven some of the most glorious campaigns there done some really serious work so you'll hear all about it as we go so over to melissa and her four objects or rather her four insights into leading i reckon your first object is a candle that is correct go on why <laughs> why why is it a candle so for me leadership has to be about how those who seem and feel like they're at the bottom of the system can overcome feeling like victims, but know that who they are and what they do, the choices that they make, can make a difference, um, not just to their lives, but to the lives of others. And the reason why the candle is important to me is... Uh, it's a moment in Brazil, isn't it? Yeah, it's 10 years ago, uh, a little over 10 years ago, and I'd been following this one criminal justice reform group uh, there uh, called the APOC system. It's uh, something to do with like the assistance and protection of the condemned and something like that. <laughs> so it's a really glorious name. But what they did was they defined crime in a, in a completely radical way. Most people think of crime as breaking the law, as doing things that are against society or antisocial. They defined crime as the violent refusal to love and be loved. So that means that a criminal is someone who is violently refusing uh, to love and be loved. And, and therefore, the response to crime actually is to restore 
persons and communities to a place where these individuals can once again love and be loved. And um, they run these community-based uh, prisons that are really low cost because they are owned in a sense and run by the community and there are almost no prison guards even in their maximum security prisons because the prisoners hold the keys to their own cells. And there's a whole system of responsibility and of self-development in accountability with others that is part of their rehabilitation and they have extremely low recidivism rates and that's why I know as a system this is not just a, a nice idea, it actually works. And, and when I was there at the time they ran over 80 prisons in Brazil. So it wasn't just a scattered uh, incidental uh, example. Anyway, when I was there we were being given a tour by one of the prisoners who said uh, as we walked down this kind of somewhat dark hall, let me take you to, to this one cell. And I asked somebody who's standing next to me, I said, where, where are we going? I said, we're going to go see their solitary unit. And I thought, oh God, because I've, you know, I've seen solitary units and people literally go crazy in those spaces because they're small and terrible and dark and everything else. But as we stood at the door of this unit, you know, he's, he, and I sort of looked in, he said, this is the place where we come to meet the only one who can change us. And when I looked into the, the solitary cell, it was, it was painted blue, like the sky, and there were birds painted on the side, just symbolizing, I think, that sense of freedom and, and, uh, and taking flight. There was a table, there was a chair, there was a Bible, and there was a candle. And the candle is what, this one candle just illuminated the whole space, I guess, because it was small. And just knowing that this man had such intention, such clarity that actually by being by himself and sitting there reflecting and taking responsibility, knowing that he he was able to change, I think to me was just was just one of the most remarkable things. What did it teach you about leadership? That actually the system that was put into place there actually focused on creating the places and the experiences, the invitations where where the people who were at the bottom, people who were in a sense victims of, the offenders even, the marginalized persons, that they could feel that they had positive role to play, that they had choices, and that they could be part of that improvement that we all want to and need to see. That sense of responsibility, I think so many times in leadership, we think that we're going to solve problems by acting upon systems, fixing other people. But we don't. We don't fix anybody. We we can only create conditions where people want to, in collaboration with others, be part of a collective solution. And your job as a leader is to make that possible. Yeah, is to know that and to create the environments that enable that to give people the space and encourage those who might never imagine that their lives, choices, consequences of their choice actually mattered, actually let them know that it does, that they do. It also sort of speaks to, I suppose, innovation being, starting with redefining things, isn't it? Very much so. Very much so, because I think you can't build that kind of a system if you think that your job is just to punish these people. You know, if your job is just correctional in that sense, because then you, then we're acting upon a system and trying to just confine people to minimize the harm that they cause by being bad people. But if you see them instead as being, well, actually they don't even call them prisoners, they call them recuperados. They see them as people in recuperation and 
perhaps see that maybe we're all in recuperation. Why a candle? You know, candles are, are such that, you know, light dispels darkness, right? All you need is just that one light. It was a dark cell and it was just this one light actually, you know, and it lights, it can light other lights and that gives you enough light to read or just if you don't want to read, you just sit there. <laughs> then your other one, very curious, is a name plaque. What? Mm -hmm. It's just a, it's it's one of those little cards that's sort of bent in across yeah. the middle, isn't it? Yeah. With a name on it. What does that symbolize? It's an identifier. Your name placard, you know, identifies you and identifies you to others. And I suppose that in, for, for me that that is around how is it that we are able to see people and have them know that they are seen, that they are known. And for me, the story around that was when I, when I started running this, this leadership development program for girls, like right when I left school thinking I knew something. And one of the activities actually was to take what the girls had learned by listening to, you know, many other life stories of, of other leaders and so forth too, and construct, you know, their own story that imagining say, you know, they were a decade or so, you know, um, two, three, whatever, in the future, how might they construct someone whom would be that leader in the future and that what would they be saying to others? And so, you know, the girls were put into these different small groups and I had uh, thought at the, at the time I'd, I'd kind of made a mistake because I try and like distribute, you make the groups fairly diverse, right? So. Unfortunately, this one group was made up of pretty much all like the top school like leaders, the sports captain, the head prefect, you know, <laughs> I'm like, oh dear, you know, and this small group was actually this one girl, let's call her Carol, who was physically disabled, obviously very um, intellectually very bright, but you know, girls in high school or secondary school, right, are not the most like inclusive, not and kind. loving, not kind. <laughs> not kind. you know, so you, you can imagine she, she wasn't the most popular person there. And, and in fact, the, the, one of the teachers told me afterwards that she was somebody who literally ate lunch by herself every single day. And in this exercise, I knew I had done my job in a sense in trying to communicate that leadership was not just about position, but it was about values that we wanted to live by, the way in which our personal choices can create that positive influence on others. When the girls did, the, did what they were supposed to do, they came up with their story and you know, then they had to choose someone who would then embody that person, that, that leader, and then communicate the story on the group's behalf. And that group chose Carol. And, and I think, again, that is a reminder as leaders, our job is to call out and intentionally include, know the names of, <laughs> and to give space for people who are those who eat lunch by themselves every day. People who exist on margins of our awareness and margins of our society, right? How is it we can be intentional, you know, about that? So, um, and it really just reminds me too that, that, you know, leaders, as leaders, we have outsized impact. You know, I mean, by doing whatever we do, had it not been the sports captain and the, and the head prefect, but people look at what they do. And so when they stood up and literally they stood behind Carol as Carol was kind of like shaking, having to do this thing because she doesn't, she never gets a chance to go in front. They literally, they surrounded her in like a semicircle behind her, stood behind her and said, you can do this. We're standing right here with you. And that 
experience to me. I think I know from stories that happened afterwards at that school that that shifted the culture a little, shifts the culture a little bit over time. So that was at the beginning of your career. Yeah. Yeah. So this was, this was almost your first job. Were you in, in looking back, were you any good at leadership at that stage? I had done the things which I think at the time I had positional leadership. So I was president of the student council. I was, you know, out of my house in school. I, I organized things. I, I did all those kinds of things. But I, like I said, I, I, I thought I knew things at that point, And I think you know, if the more you know, the more you really, really realize you don't know a lot of things. And um, <laughs> most of my life uh, post Harvard has been unlearning. So it's a, it's a good thing, I think. Yep. Learning from candles and nameplates. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and from spiders webs. Spiders webs. Yes. You know, again, I, I, for me, the, the spiders web speaks to me about networks. Something I learned when I was working in some kind of organizing and campaigning against um, uh, human trafficking in and around Singapore was that it takes a network to fight a network. It takes a network to fight a network. That if you think that you can try and do something in your you know, efforts alone, then you are gravely mistaken. And actually the, the power of a trafficking, of traffickers is that they're a very well-coordinated network. Yeah. And if we think that we are going to have any shot at, at redressing that, then we need to think similarly. We need to think like a network too. Well, all these campaigns that you've run, you've always started by building networks. Always, always. I think it's defining the issue and saying why that issue is important. First, that to clarify reality. This is what's happening. Mm -hmm. And if redefinitions are necessary, redefine. Then second, give people a sense of what exactly is happening and how it affects them and how they can play a role. And if you bring it down to just those sort of like simple pieces, then you realize that actually everyone speaking to the network, you know, can have some way, shape or form <laughs> in being involved in making things better. And you become almost less of the leader, don't oh. you? Then you become... The, you become the glue. I don't know if it's even the glue. I, I think it's, I think maybe there's part of it, which is that candle, which shines a light on, yeah. the, on the issue in some yeah. ways, right? It's naming, you know, people and saying why and how they're important, relevant to address that. And seeing ourselves in the context of some kind of a, of a connected whole, you know, yeah. like we, that we all do play a part. And and I think when people are clear about the role, in a sense, the issue, that the nature of it, and the role and the, that they can play, the assets that they have, the relevance to them, like, there's nothing to do with me after a certain point, right? To me, the job of the leader is also to sort of endlessly bore everybody to tears by repeating... The mantras. Why we're doing this. The why we're doing this. That I also think is, is true, but ultimately, what you want to build, I think, too. You can hear other people saying what you would have said. <laughs> what you hope is also in their heart, right? Yes, absolutely, you know? <laughs> absolutely. You know, and ultimately, I think it is. Well, this is interesting, yeah. isn't it? Because the last one is a phone speaking to you. Yeah, I know. Oh, I go on. I told you. I told go on, this, abs this is a completely crazy story. But yeah, it is completely crazy. But you know, I'm somebody that believes in sort of like magic and miracles, right? So, so literally, 
started speaking to you because I was crying in the jungle. Okay, why was I crying in the jungle on a long, long, long run? I was crying in the jungle on a long, long, long run because because at the beginning of 2020, I knew that as COVID, whatever it was, you know, some very bad, 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 bad flu that was very, very, you know, <laughs> catchy, you know, I knew this was going to fly through the foreign worker dormitories in Singapore. And I, and I kept asking who's translating our health communication, our health, uh, public health messages and the rest of that, you know, into Bengali, into various Indian languages and so forth. I mean, who's doing this? And then there was, there was like, oh, we're just focusing on our local population. But so everybody was saying it's somebody else's it's somebody problem. Else, it's somebody else's problem. And I guess sometimes you know the problem and you try and do something about it, but you, basically you, you can't. And then the day that the news broke that COVID had like started, you know, running through the, the migrant worker dorms, you know, I just, I broke down because I was so angry and I was so disappointed with myself and I was so disappointed with the system that like we just failed to figure this out and do something about it, right? So I was, I was literally just like thinking, you know, this is the beginning of a really, really bad thing that's going to happen. And I went out to the jungle to run. And literally, I, I hadn't run in a while, so I thought, I don't know if I'm going to make it around this whole reservoir. I'm okay. like, oh dear. But about halfway through, so I kind of knew, you know, do or die, you just got to keep going. My phone starts speaking to me. And my phone reads the words, I mean, it basically says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's the words of Jesus, well, some of the last words of Jesus on the cross. And all I can see as these words are coming out of my phone is the face of a migrant worker. And he's just looking at me. And, I, and I'm so convicted that, that as a society, we've just failed. We've just failed. And as people who say they are people of faith and, and, and are committed to doing the right thing, we've failed too because we, we didn't see Jesus amongst the last of the least, right? And, um, and I'm, I'm just heartbroken. And you are now, and, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I really, I, I, I really feel it, you know? But then my phone doesn't stop and it starts reading the 23rd Psalm, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I know at that moment, somehow, that truly the grace of God is still, is still sufficient and where there is, you know, pain and devastation, actually God is also with us. And, and I somehow know that the resources are going to be made available, that we will respond and we can respond, you know, to this situation. And then, and then it goes on to read the 24th Psalm, which, is, which says, you know, who shall ascend the hill, of the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And I'm so clear at that point that what is so important to do is just, is to, is to not be filled with like anger and malice, but to work really constructively with, with compassion, with love, with forgiveness on the issues. And then it ends with like, you know, the gates opening and the doors opening and all these kinds of things. And I think of glory comes in and I, and I know that that ultimately the, there is an arc to this story and the arc ends on a high. So for me, I guess what is the leadership lesson with that? I think one is that we can and should always do our best. We need to do that with clean hands and a pure heart. 
because who we are in and on the system makes a difference in how that system shifts. If I'd come to this with like, oh my God, I told you so, you know, I mean, if I'd come to, you guys are so stupid, why are you, <laughs> you know, as opposed to constructively, look, we are going through a crisis right now. We need to not focus on who's to blame. We need to focus on what needs to be done. And ultimately we cannot forget what has happened, but let's look at this objectively, figure out how we're all part of the problem and we're all part of the solution and start working on ways in which, you know, we can fundamentally rethink the way that we integrate and support foreign, foreign talent, foreign workers, you know, in, in Singapore going forward. So it really was that moment of just knowing we do our best with clean hands and a pure heart and the rest we just have to release and trust. And that was your phone. And that was my phone. It wasn't really your I know. phone. <laughs> it wasn't really your phone, was it? <laughs> well, I guess it just says that, you know, any, anything can be used as the, uh, the medium and the message, right? So... <laughs> The cross theme for all this, and I suppose the cross theme for almost everything you've chosen to lead, has been things you care about, mm. things that make you cry. <laughs> Indeed. Candles. But maybe the, there's an expression I remember you once used to me about zigzagging. Yeah. Does it all come back to zigzagging? You know, I think in a way the role of, of the leader too is to to be a prophet for an alternative future and hopefully a better future that one sees glimpses of but doesn't yet exist. Many times it's different if not the opposite <laughs> of what we see around us, <laughs> you know. So that divergent thinking in some ways is... Um, is what zagging is, is about. I think I mentioned, you know, that time when I was uh, running in, you know, these youth HIV AIDS campaigns, I was trying to find the right creative agency to work with for them pro bono, to invite them to participate. In uh, the network? In the network, indeed, you know, and uh, of course clubs and bars were also part of that network mm -hmm. and um, the rest of it. But how are we going to reach, you know, young people with this, younger people with this message? Anyway, so I, I walked into this one place and they had this, this big poster of like a whole bunch of white sheep, you know, walking in one direction and a black sheep walking in the other. And it just says, when the world zigs, comma, zag. Say that again. When the world, when the world zigs, zag, hmm. you know, you know, and I thought, okay, these, these guys are the ones I'm going to work with them. <laughs> That's BBH. Because there's not enough zagging. There's not enough zagging, you know, zagging isn't rewarded, zagging isn't protected. I mean, usually zagging, zagging gets, you know, you don't want to talk about like, you know, win friends and influence people kind of makes you lose friends and like, you know, freak people out. But, but I mean, ultimately <laughs> it's what the system needs, right? And if you do it with the right intentions in some ways, you know, that clean hands, pure heart piece, you know, the, um, the system responds and moves. Yeah. And how do you make sure your team never stops zagging? I think it's really hard. I'm really trying to figure that out. Really, I think, really hard? I, I think as th there have to be proponents of the zag. Like there have to be almost appointed apostles of the zag, if you will. You know, there, there needs to be a way to literally name and have people own that role because it's too difficult if it's one person's job. Yeah. yeah. You have to cover each other's back you, when you're you, zagging. Yeah, well, you, you do. It is. And it's almost like a network of zaggers who are each going to be influencing and disrupting, you know, their own system. 
but being able to be supportive of and accountable to each other to keep doing that as you hopefully replicate other Because circles. I suppose sometimes you zag and then you fail and then you... You, get, you fail a lot, you, I think, when you, you zag. You go on a, ra- a run and the phone doesn't speak to you. <laughs> I know. So you finish the run absolutely <laughs> devastated, at which point you need a friend. Absolutely. Everyone, everyone always needs a friend. And I, I think that's probably one of the big lessons in leadership too. More than leadership, I almost feel like the purpose of life you know, is to be a friend. On that note, (laughs) thank you very, very much, Melissa. I'm (laughs) honoured. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that. It was interesting. While I was interviewing Melissa, I was thinking I need to use a different voice because my normal voice will sound shrill and irritating alongside Melissa's gentle, thoughtful, enchanting, beautiful voice. I tried to match it a bit, but I didn't manage to. Melissa thinks harder about things than almost anybody I've ever met. And she says things that just sort of sink into your brain. It takes a network to beat a network. Oh, how true. And I'm going to go away thinking about that one. But zagging too. How important it is for leaders to protect, to encourage, to celebrate the zaggers, even if their ideas lead to nothing. What they bring to the culture by zagging is so incredibly important. Anyhow, thank you, Melissa. I'll go back to my normal voice. Yours is so beautiful. That was lovely. Thank you very much. Look forward to next week's episode. Sending everybody much love. To become part of our movement and share your thinking with us, subscribe to the podcast and join the Women Emerging group on our website at womenemerging.org. We love all of the messages you send us. Keep them coming.